0: Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Penabad. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Penabad and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world today. I'm delighted to be speaking with Leon Creer, one of the most provocative architectural and urban thinkers of our time. His career has been a long standing critique of the legacy of modernist city planning, and his ideas have changed the discourse of what makes a city successful through a return to traditional principles of architecture and town planning and the creation of community. Leon, welcome to On Cities. It is always a pleasure to speak with you.
1: It's a pleasure to be talking to you and your public, of course.
0: <laughs> Leon, you were born in Luxembourg and you spent your formative years there. What was it like to be a young child in this context?
1: Well, I, I grew up in a city, which is quite exceptional. It, is, it was like a child's game it had been the biggest fortress uh, built in Europe and uh, in Luxembourg City mm-hmm. which had been fortified under Louis XIV under Louis Fourteenth, by the greatest engineer Vauban and it's a spectacular when I grew up it was still intact spectacular place we we lived on on the edge of a an, uh, Canyon and Boulevard with beautiful linden trees And my mother was a pianist and my father was a tailor and uh, for the clergy and uh, and so on and they were extremely sensitive to the beauty of of where we were so we grew up uh, in this environment which seemed to be normal to us but we also knew from our parents that there was something special here i mean the because you cannot imagine a town being an object a large fortress was like the city itself was built on a rock, linked by bridges and viaducts over canyons which are 150 feet deep. And the forts which were outside, they were linked under the valleys by underground uh, tunnels. So that when the city was lost, still the bastions could be defended. And our house stood actually on one of these bastions, and even in the, you know, in the basement, there were still signs of this. So and then I thought this was quite normal. Huh? And um but then my brother studied, he's older, he studied architecture in Munich, so he sent me material and we got very excited about. Gropius and Le Corbusier and modernism. And I started to do projects for my beautiful city. (laughs) And sooner or later realized, if I bring those ideas here, it will just smash the the beautiful place (laughs) to bits. And no, it's then, I mean, you then forget when you are 15, 18, you know, you, you have all this past experience and then you study. And then you st- suddenly I studied briefly in Germany in a hor- horrible town, which had been bombed by Bomber Command in Stuttgart. And the teaching was terrible.
0: Actually, and- Leon, before, before we delve into that, because um, I definitely want to talk about your educational experiences, which were unusual. Um, but maybe if I could just linger a little bit further on these formative years, which I think when you look at your body of work and your ideas, I think played a pivotal role in your ability to create the theories that would really launch you to an international stage years later. So, I mean, now that I that I learned that your father's a tailor, I understand your sartorial splendor. And I also know that um, you are also quite a formidable pianist. And so I hadn't realized that your mother was a pianist, but, you know, I was interested if you could speak a little bit more about maybe the world that they were able to create, because I find it fascinating that they were able to nurture such independently minded children, including yourself and your older brother, um, Bob Creer. Do you think that was a byproduct of your, um, your parental upbringing or also a certain sense of freedom that you were able to experience in living where you were? Meaning roaming the streets and you talked about it as a kind of almost playground Do you think that the physical environment influenced your independent thinking?
1: I think they were both inseparable. My father, uh, he employed five to ten people, depending on on the workload. But my father would sit in the window, because that's where the best light is. The master, tailor was sitting in the window overlooking the valley. And when you walked by, I mean, it was a higher window, so you, you you couldn't look onto his table, but... Definitely, the workplace was for us children was playground. You no, know, we we would play in there and and even you know, make clothes for my teddy bear and so on. And um, we had also a big garden where my bro- my mother, with her pianist hands, she grew enough vegetables to to feed a family of four of four children. And um, and then we had. I would play with my sisters and you know, friends who would play in the garden. And when the bell rang, I would go to primary school, you know, which is the first first grade, I think you call it, you know, from 6 to 12. I would listen in the garden to hear the bell, and it was across the street. And next to it was a huge uh, milk factory opposite our house, where in the morning horses would come, with cans of uh, milk, which would then be you know, worked in the in this uh, factory, but which was a beauty. It looked like a giant Swiss chalet, now destroyed, and the house is destroyed, and the town has since become a horror, a horror place. No? I feel sick going there, no? and so you had an environment which was perfect I then when I started studying I then went to I studied briefly I left because I didn't didn't really learn what I wanted and then I found out with the then big master James Sterling in London that he knew also nothing about architecture or about about town planning so I started seeing where Know where are the great ideas, and I found out that actually my own hometown had been built according to principles which were still valid, and which had been uh, articulated by people like Otto Wagner. Who was a famous. He was the most famous Secessionist architect in Vienna, and another famous architect called Sarinen, Ilya Sarinen, who was the chief planner of, uh, of a part of Helsinki. And they had formulated what had been realized in Luxembourg because of geographic reasons. Because there were deep canyons, so you only had plateaus left in between, and you had to link them by, by bridges, so that each of these quarters, four or five quarters, which had been built, were like independent towns. And that became then revised by Otto Wagner and by Sarin. I've reformulated these. That cities should be built in form of independent quarters. That's how Paris worked for the last 200 years, because Neuhosman, who was the chief planner under Napoleon III, who revised totally Paris, reorganized large metropolitan area where three million people lived uh, from several hundred um, um, uh, parishes into 20 arrondissements which is like districts and each of these arrondissements was organized in four urban quarters each one had a town hall and there you see this polycentric multi-centered large city which is the key i grew up by by one by chance and because the geography wouldn't allow to grow together <laughs> and, uh, it's what 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 I then promoted and what we do. You know, it's because it really works. Now the Leon, I'm
0: sorry sorry to interject here. I'm gonna keep uh, pulling you back um, because you you mentioned briefly that you worked for Sterling. So as you said, you you studied at the University of Stuttgart, but you left after one year um, because you really you didn't find the the i guess the the knowledge or that you were that you were seeking Um, but i'm curious why did you decide to work for sterling or how how did that come to be because you could argue that i think you spent more than four years with sterling so in a way it became um a kind of apprenticeship could i say so what 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 brought you to work for sterling
1: well when i studied i realized that university is no longer teaching architecture No, urbanism, we had to do childish, childish exercise, graphic exercise, which were called Bauhaus, Bauhaus exercise, which were just for kindergarten. And I knew already what I wanted very, quite, quite a lot, because I had studied, you know, and so on, Otto Wagner and uh, and so on.
0: Independently, that is. You had studied it independently. Yeah,
1: because my brother had studied before, so we had been a bit ahead of the, and also my brother, he, had, he was student leader in Munich where he invited ten architects who were not fashionable, like Friotto or Ungers, uh, who became then fashionable 20 years later. But we were kind of trying to find a more interesting way out of the boredom which was built. All new buildings start, which started also in Luxembourg were terrible. Whereas when we grew up, when we were children, Luxembourg, part of Luxembourg was rebuilt in a beautiful way by craftsmen and architects who knew about craft. Now, I went to, an, uh, uh, when I went to the lycée, to the secondary school, which is, I don't know what you call it, but, uh, you know, from 12 to 18, uh, that was in a town which had been entirely been rebuilt after the, after the war. And it was a beautiful place. And we as children saw that this is possible. When we drove, my parents drove us always to Italy and to Switzerland and to the Côte d'Azur to see beautiful things. But when we drove through the, from Luxembourg to Switzerland, or oh, you had to drive through the French industrial areas of Lorraine, and Lorraine had been devastated already by terrible modern buildings, modernist buildings. You know, by, and we only thought, poor Frenchmen, why do they have to live in such horrors? <laughs> While well, in Luxembourg, the new building was still until 1955, was quite good. So I had the experience that all the ideology, which we were taught, that you can only rebuild in an industrial way. And then I was confronted by that ideology, even at Sterling's.
0: So why of... why Sterling, though? Why James well, Sterling? Because... Obviously, he was a note notable architect practicing in london for those who are listening who might not know of james sterling but why james I, sterling's office i
1: was enchanted with uh, with the teaching so i went to the library i spent more time in the library than elsewhere and so i looked also through magazines who is interesting nowadays and i found two names one was uh, louis Kahn, and the other one was Jim sterling and then i looked more about what does this Sterling do? And I found one building which I found really, he's as good as Le Corbusier, he's a genius. But the rest I didn't like. But that building, the Leicester engineering faculty, was an absolute uh, piece of genius and still is. So I wrote to him, I sent him my drawings and he said if those drawings are yours, you can work for me. So I of course left and my brother said, hooray, yeah, you <laughs> don't have to waste your time in a stupid Teaching, you know, and I say this because most students nowadays, most architectural students I know, young people, they are bored to tears by the teaching, and they should get out of the damn schools because they learn nothing except Miami and Notre Dame, and there are three or four places where you still uh, teach real architecture, you know. And but I know that from young people, they have the same, same feeling of boredom, which is terrible for the profession. And when you are most capable of learning, you know, at, at that age when you're 18 or 20, you you learn like nothing. I mean, you you remember everything. And so you know, Sterling, and then with Sterling, I found out that he knows nothing about urbanism, because I worked briefly on on a scheme which had been was planned for Runcorn town centre housing over 2,000 units uh, for a new town, and he had a scheme which I found so unsatisfactory that we had juries on Friday evenings like you have in schools, you know, and we could then, the employees could vent criticism. And I, I said, you know, this is going to be disaster, sir. And I told him, you know, you have to take me off that job. I can't sleep anymore. And then he gave me other jobs. He rented another room for me in another street to make competitions. But so, I was totally, I was looking for a master. And when you are 20 years old, you look for a master who can tell you exactly what is right and wrong. Because you need guidance. Like, when you learn the piano or violin, there are things you don't know, even if you have talent. You know? And you need guidance and you look for a master. And uh, and so, I I tried to find the master, but I couldn't find it. And my brother was too young to be a master. You know? And what I saw built, I admired for a while somebody like Oswald Matthias Ungers, but I went to see his buildings and I was horrified. How can a man you know, so famous and so professor in Berlin, how can he do such horrors? And so well,
0: actually, when you were working in Sterling's office, because it's interesting that you said that you were looking for a mentor. Um, and, and, and that is, I think is a natural uh, way of thinking when you are, you know, let's say 18 or 19, as you said, but when you actually worked for Sterling, you know, he hired you based on the portfolio of drawings that you sent and the drawings that you created in Sterling's office became iconic architectural images that were printed and published in leading architectural journals of the day, the same journals that you you were flipping through in that library as you saw to search for who you could work with. Um, But from the onset, it seems that drawing plays a critical role in your work, not only to depict your own projects, but as didactic annotated diagrams that are capable of encapsulating all of your ideas in just a few lines. Uh, I'm curious if um, you always drew from a young age and if Le Corbusier's drawings inspired the development of your own drawing technique.
1: Totally yes, absolutely. And uh, I found when I I worked on competitions for Sterling for two years, and then uh, on and off, he then called me. I went to Germany for a while and came back um, to do his first book, which was like a copy, an imitation of Le Corbusier's first volume. Uh, not only not only uh, graphically, but the whole. Because Corbusier was a genius in publishing, and so was uh, Sterling. He had he actually uh, had an idea what would work in publishing. So we one had to study very carefully an image before it was properly drawn, because and he would. I I worked. I did publication drawings for a while, even before starting the book. It's just what will be the most characteristic drawing which will sum up the spirit and the you know the standard place in in the building and so which i had the other schooling from my brother who is an enormous talent artistic talent who produces like i mean cornucopia of of drawing sculptures buildings anything so we lived with this volcano at home and um but for instance, he would then he would produce an, a city, uh, a, a linear city from Hamburg to Munich. Your brother, ah. yes. When he was in the army, he would draw, spend time drawing this city, and then he would send like thousand, five hundred, four hundred drawings around the world to different magazines. Never anything was published, not for years, until I did. he he had uh, produced a church, which I thought is fantastic. I am an incredible brother. He's like New copies. So I did, because it was too expensive to photograph these large drawings, I did small drawings to publish. Those were the only things which were published for years of his, because Architecture d'aujourd'hui, which was then the most famous magazine, published those drawings which I had done of, of his church. And then with Sterling, choosing so carefully, I understood I have to redraw everything I've done, three drawings for a project, very short text, not to bore people. And I sent them around, and I was suddenly world famous. (laughs) Within like two weeks, I had published in all over the world, in like two months, all over the world. There were like eight major magazines were published between 10 and 15 pages. Casabella, Conto Spazio, today. And then, because that was Sterling's system, he would produce three drawings, which were so powerful. And you probably know the drawing, in you know, the uh, history faculty uh, in Cambridge. It was a drawing which, once you saw it, tac, it really sticks in your. It's a strong, it hits you like a bomb, you know. And... Mm. Uh, so it was that, that is what I really learned from Sterling that you no, know, publishing is very careful. You need to be very careful what you publish, not quantity, but just very, it's a technique.
0: So yeah, even and so it's totally it, it's unknown.
1: A, totally unknown. You send three of those drawings and you get published.
0: Yeah, yeah so you're saying because of uh, the power of the image, you would say even more than the content of the image? So it's more yeah. the the yeah. The, po- the power of the image versus yeah. the interesting. Because
1: you know, Sterling made the impression of being a great master. And that's how he got this enormous project for Rancon town center housing. It was like a whole town, building a whole town, but in fact became a suburb. It was demolished after 10 years. But that came purely out of his authority of having produced three or four Buildings which were really exceptionally interesting, and the rest was rather common, you no know, uninteresting, poor Corbusier copies, and so on. So, but you know, you learn by, by your own mistakes or by others' mistakes. And when well, I did the book to, about Sterling, I looked through all his archives, I had no workspace, no room only for myself. <clears throat> I had all his archive, and I went through everything, and I saw that there was absolutely no consistent way of drawing. There were very poor graphics. I mean, going from Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, um, trying Frank Lloyd Wright, trying Corbusier, trying this and that, and Gropius, and uh, and a bit of this and that. And so I I said, you know, we need a unified way to represent this, and the way to present your work is Corbusier's a scenographic presentation in his Oeuvre complete, he looks at the project and he presents it like it's a script for a film. And you can look at those books and go from the entrance to the exit to the to the parking and you live in one five, six pages of publication, you can get the spirit and the place and the geometry, everything.
0: It's not Actually... just
1: nice, nice pictures, no.
0: Actually, um, I know a few other individuals who have studied the work of Le Corbusier um, to the degree that you have, Léon. In fact, um, I've heard you, and even in this interview, you've heard to Le Corbusier as a great artist and a graphic genius. Um, But I'm curious, how do you reconcile this admiration? Um, I don't know if you would say it's admiration, but admiration with Le Corbusier's own philosophies about the cities. Um, as his ideas are so dramatically opposed to your own,
1: but you know they they he's a human and he's a genius and uh, but geniuses make also terrible mistakes yeah. if you uh, ask Robert Oppenheimer about world government, you will only get real no b s ideas huh. whereas he was a genius in in his field in no, in physics and mathematics and he was a great master of of leading people to to build a bomb but so that is one of the problems of our time is that the geniuses they are they are geniuses in one field and can be complete idiots in other in other fields Corbusier was totally ignoramus as far as uh, urbanism goes he had no clue about urbanism and uh, he started by making interesting uh, traditional towns, learned from Camilo the famous Austrian theoretician uh, um, about urban um, space. But then, when he wanted to do his own, he became really—it's not—it's destructive. He wanted to destroy Paris and replace the West Bank, you know, with twenty-four skyscrapers, creating just a desert so and you you find this no hitler was a genius in propaganda now he was also a terribly evil person Um, there and that is the proper the common of of modern man is that we are geniuses one little thing and the rest we are idiots i mean listen to people now in the pentagon talking about strategy, I mean.
0: Well, Leo... We
1: children, no.
0: Let me ask you um what were so what what are the greatest lessons that you learned from Le Corbusier because in a way you said you were looking for a mentor right but maybe in a way you you've you've at the very least engaged in a lifelong conversation across time <laughs> with Le Corbusier so in a way he has served a bit as a I don't want to say a mentor that would be too strong of a word but I think you've drawn lessons from your studies of Le Corbusier so what what, do you, what are the greatest lessons that you've taken away in looking and studying Le Corbusier
1: well when I was 14 I wrote to Le Corbusier and he actually replied. So oh, I would really? have worked for him, but I was in in boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> the the foundation they still have my letter but I, my my the letter from Corbusier was burned in a book which was burned uh, by accident. And uh, no I would have worked for him because he is an inspired artist, he's a fantastic writer. I mean the con- not so much the content, but more the poetry of his texts uh, are so powerful and convincing. And so you have to take the problem is when you when you have a man like that who has a vision, and then but then you go to see what he did, you see that of course he was unable to to actually build his vision because his vision was absolutely failed. No. He had no, no clue of a town. I went to see all his buildings and also the town, the new town in Punjab in India. And you clearly see that he has no, no the, the authority he had came from publications. And he should have never been asked to design a city because he had no clue. But then you discover that it was not only him, but all his contemporaries, the modernists, the Congrès International d'Architecture Moderne, they had no clue about urbanism. They, they were badly influenced by the impression which 19th century pollution and excessive development of historic towns made on them by creating slums and having too much noise in the streets and having buildings too high for the width of the streets. But they, had, they wanted to destroy the, what they called the historic town, the historic city model, to replace it by open air by mixing uh, countryside and city which is not possible because you know to build a city you need to respect certain proportions certain building heights certain numbers of floors uh, sizes of public spaces otherwise it just becomes desert and we can afford to build deserts because we have cars and we have lifts and we have air conditioning but Traditionally, people had to build intelligently with the materials they found in a certain place with the topography they found <laughs> the materials they found and the, the 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 human the manpower they had and the animal power in order to build places and they built fantastic cities, the poor and the rich, no even the poorest architecture in Africa or in Europe or in, in China historically, when it is still there as it was intended, was beautiful, was practical, was ecological, was uh, sustainable and everlasting, as long-lasting as humans can afford. And modernism in a way destroyed that by our, as Jim Künstler, which you have interviewed, he said, we are drunk on fossil fuel. The power which fossil fuel gives to us allows us to build uh, not only with an, a might, I mean just a physical force, lift things, build numbers of floors which nobody ever could have built before, or even you no know, built glass buildings in the desert where they have no, <laughs> without the air conditioning and the fossil fuel which you need, have no chance to 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 function properly for very long. So, in a way, that excess. And that is the problem of evolution, that evolution, we live, you know, human civilizations are evolutionary, but evolution does not necessarily mean progress, means not necessarily a progress in all aspects. You know, it may be progress in using concrete or using steel, but compared to, we had no progress in city building in the last 200 years No.
0: Leon, I when I hear you um describe, I guess what I hear is, you know, you you part of what you learned or you take away from Le Corbusier is, you know, again, his artistic might and his kind of graphic genius, as you mentioned, and also his ability to promote and market himself. And for that, he was extraordinary. And you're able to still study him, despite the fact that his ideas for urbanism, as you state, uh, were flawed at best, you know, Um, which I think is an interesting thing for individuals in the audience, those that might be listening, those that are familiar with your work, those that might even, you know, follow your theories because I think that many of these individuals may not even look at the work of Le Corbusier. And I think what you're arguing is that when you see rare talent um, in whatever form, you know, you, you shouldn't be afraid of investigating it and taking from it the lessons that you can. And that's what I think makes you a kind of curious and an independent minded thinker. So um, actually maybe despite the fact that you left the university, uh, because you mentioned this, you went to work for Sterling, you engaged in that kind of voracious dialogue dialogue across time with Le Corbusier and so many others, because every time that, you know, we've emailed, you, you you never send an email without sending an incredible reference or, you know, some book that I've never heard of. And um, so I feel like you're always in the process of learning, which I find fascinating. But despite the fact that you left the university, you actually returned to academia as an influential teacher at the Architectural Association in London. And you were there for um, more than 20 years, I believe, starting in the late 1970s. Um, can you share a little bit about what it was like to teach architecture at the AA during that period?
1: Well, I was invited. Uh, I I went to London to work for Stirling with the thought that maybe I do a, a diploma later in the Architecture Association, which was a school which was fairly open. And uh, But then I was asked while I was working for Stirling, I was invited to teach, even though I had no qualifications. I was invited to teach by Eliad Zangalis, who was then a famous teacher and so on.
0: Did he invite uh, you based on the drawings he had seen that you had done?
1: Yes, I had had published in in Italy for the Triennale in Milan, and he saw them, he liked it, and we became friends immediately. So he asked me to teach. I had no clue how to teach. So I assisted for a year and uh, and then had my own unit and i was sitting between brian anson who was an uh an anarcho communist and uh, uh bernard trumi who was uh, a young swiss elegant swiss um, intellectual and Eliad zenghalis people like that and and peter cook who was the founder of archigram was a high-tech uh, fantasist and um and they were always very nice people. It's fantastic uh, atmosphere, and I always thought, how is this possible? You know, these people—they totally disagree with each other—and we were all friends, and that was very stimulating, and but also confusing for students because uh, I started—I knew more or less what I was interested in, so I started uh, inviting people and. I found that I disagreed with almost everybody I invited to to, to teach that no, they wouldn't agree with me. <laughs> so the second year I had when I was unit master, I, I then did all the lectures myself because I was fed up in having arguments with the people I invited. And we had juries only among students who are much more severe than the outsiders. Because when we had juries, the juries would not criticize the students, but me you know, saying that, you know, why do you design urban blocks, that's finished, you know, or why urban quarters, that's the past, you know, public space, urban space, that's replaced by telephone and by aeroplanes and, you know, all this nonsense, you know, which, which was uh, so fashionable, and still is fashionable now. And so but the school allowed me to, for three, I only taught for three years, actually, there.
0: Oh, really? Okay.
1: Yeah, no, I was there for three years and then I found also I most teachers so there was in the end after three years became very people like Richard Rogers who in, in the beginning were, who was famous for you know was doing Paris uh, Pompidou Center but he was very supportive in the beginning but in the end you felt <laughs> it's not not going to end well and so in the the final after three years sitting overlooking students work I I, I just quit because it was impossible to to find any common ground, you know, to judge students. Because, you know, the, the juries would be extremely severe with my students who had done rather, I mean, reasonable work, but I was not able to allow to be critical with their work, you know, building cities in the air and, I don't know, flying circuses and <laughs> <laughs> London in fire or things like that. So... Maybe. I left and I taught then briefly at the um, at the Royal College and replacing Ken Frampton and then and then American Princeton I uh, was invited around, but from then on I had I had published a lot and I had done enough work to survive by myself. You know?
0: Leon, you have an interesting story with Zaha Hadid at the AA, don't you? She was was she your student?
1: She was a student in my first year when I was full when I had a full unit, and she was an extraordinary character in permanent crisis. <laughs> very ad- adorable person, but but very crying a lot and uh, you know struggling with her own temper, and also with her own disability because she was not good. She tried to draw, but we did my first project with them was for. Um, to rebuild the Diocletian camp in uh, Palmyra, which is fantastic building, which is like a small town all by itself, four blocks with a public building and you know uh, street crossing and marketplace, fantastic place. They had to rebuild this from scratch, and she had she was she had no she was a mathematician. She had studied mathematics and she was qualified. Mathematics, but had no clue about architecture. He had had one year in previously. Where the EA was was also had terribly weak sides. I mean, you could do, you know, cook a pizza and call that architecture. whereas I, I really demanded them to do to draw buildings which had the building type would sit on a public space and know what you are doing. You know.
0: But maybe what i had um heard was that you were fundamental i mean clearly i think your views of uh architecture and city um was not aligned with zaha's but i think you were able to witness i guess uh, a talent and that you were able to connect her to Zengeli's, which i think eventually placed her in a place that that...
1: Was, that was later when she was with me she did rather she performed rather poorly
0: yeah and well I... m- maybe because of the uh, i mean she's not with us to be able to uh no, no, but she was not.
1: She didn't know what she wanted. She was not yet uh, onto the what she wanted, and um, she did sketches which were rather poor. And uh, but I always encouraged my students. I mean, they were, I was not uh, severe with them. So we even published uh, the work. So it's it's published. I can send you if you want to see it. But um, it was not not very good. She was not. But we we became friends, and she was always there. No, I would wait for students. But Sarah would be there, so we talked a lot. She had to organize the first exhibition. I organized at ArtNet and so on. She was always there, and when she then the second year she went to another unit. She, but we we stayed friends, and she kept on. I kept on seeing her. She would show me her sketches, and suddenly, after I think the most influential was because uh, I had a lot of people staying with me in London know uh, artists from all over the place like Massimo Scolari and Ronovell and, uh, and she would meet all those people at at my place and I think she was mostly influenced by Massimo Scolari. And and that suddenly set her off, and that because I also lectured on on Corbusier and uh, was a man I respect enormously, Maya Christian. I don't know whether I send you some stuff or. No, and construct Russian constructivism. So she did her own and got interested in in Malevich and suddenly when she showed me always her sketchbook and one day she showed me the first sketchbook she had filled with Malevich kind of crosses. And so Zaha, I mean this is really getting very interesting. <laughs> I have to send you to Elia. No, to Elia Zangelis. And they really then you know, the even from the partnership and that is from where she exploded. She really but it was I think it was Massimo Scolari's um uh influence. She I don't think she would have agreed to that, but I saw it happening. No.
0: Mm, that's interesting. Well, I, I think it is heartening because um, given her successes in the industry that, you know, we're all searching uh, initially, you know, it doesn't just happen. So I think there's uh, there's lessons to be learned there as well. So turning back to your own work, uh, the work that would really make you um, internationally renowned, your thought about cities, you have the book, The Architecture of Community, and you expanded upon your earlier publication entitled Architecture architecture choice or fate um, leon could you explain the theories that you set forth um, in this book and how they can create a more sustainable and beautiful um, set of towns and cities
1: well two two titles which are still important for me architecture choice or fate you know you could say the same for marriage or for anything choice or fate what is our time we live in goddam we live in democracy so the highest good in democracy is the choice, not which goes against fate in many. And whereas in architectural schools or in architectural ideology, you are told that we live in an evolutionary stage where modernism has superseded all previous developments in architecture. No. All the traditional architecture are now No, they are on the garbage heap of history. And you should just study modernism because that is the new language. Well, it turned out that modernism was no language. And that is why I work on Le Corbusier, because if there is a quality in Le Corbusier, it can be done with traditional architecture. And on top of that, that is one volume. The other volume is about where I turn modernism into a real language. (laughs) <laughs> and and it becomes beautiful because it's the interesting part of modernism was very much influenced, one hundred percent influenced by engineering uh, design, by the design of bridges and particularly of ships and uh, you know, vehicles and so on, totally influenced. And you know the inspiration you have on being on trans transatlantic liner, where you had this modernist. From 1880s onwards, you had liners or, you know, the boats on the Mississippi, which were like modernist manifestos. They had nothing to do with traditional architecture. They were real manifestos of openness and transparency, all the thing, all the ideas which were promoted 20 years, 30 years later by modernism, you had already on those boats or in transatlantic liners, you know, the language, the spirit, the type, the opening types and so on, portals and so on. So I'm now also proving that modernism was doubly guilty because not only it was unable to build cities, but even the language. One could have built a beautiful city with modernist, the limited minimalist language, which it permits you. But then there's a limit because now, the Bauhaus aesthetics or the Corbusier aesthetics of the 20s and, and 30s is voluntarily limited and you wonder why because modern what they call modern materials which are basically um, synthetic materials which come from very wasteful processes industrial processes like concrete and steel and glass uh, they don't dictate a shape you can do any shape with glass or any shape with uh with concrete or any shape with steel so the idea that it needs to be boring and terribly repetitive is complete lie because you know there is no reason why to limit yourself artistically to what modernism did what Bauhaus did like now von the Leyen, the president of our european union presents now the new bauhaus like that was a new vision it was a vision which was so limited that you couldn't even build a proper historically what the Bauers realized was nice lamps or chairs, but there was not a single a single urban experiment of modernism, famous no, which is really worth repeating because
0: Le- Leon, when, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, the maybe you know clearly the architecture of community embedded in it, your 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 most recent book, I would say, um, it certainly has the critique of the kind of legacy of modernist planning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would argue that your ideas, the ideas that you set forth in the architecture of community, that I would be interested in seeing if you could distill them, not into the five points, let's say, but maybe some critical points that you could share with our listeners, those that might not be familiar with your work. And I think those ideas you put into practice in my mind in the creation, for instance, of Poundbury on the Western outskirts of Dorchester, England. And that development is led by the Duchy of Cornwall with the endorsement of King Charles III. You began that work um, in 1988, I believe. Even the city is perhaps due to be completed shortly, I think in 2025. And it's expected to house a population of approximately 6,000 people. So Leon, for those in the audience that are not familiar with your work, can you briefly state what the main uh, kind of the driving ideas for Poundberry are and how they are essentially a physical critique of what you're discussing now in terms of the legacy of modernist urban planning?
1: Yeah, the no, the misunderstanding about modernism is that there would be something like a modernist urbanism. Modernist urbanism is a sub-urbanism, it's not urbanism. It doesn't build towns. It builds zones of offices, zones of houses, zones of educational, zones of industry and, and so on. And that's a fundamental mistake. You know? And we are the first generation, there are many people who criticize this kind of zoning of single functions in large concentration of single functions in large geographic areas, which obliges the users to be involuntary wasters of fossil fuel (laughs) and energies which should be spent better, you know. And whereas what we do is to very systematically not build suburbs, but also not build gated communities, because gated communities are no communities. They are Zones of generally limited to certain income and so on. So whereas the idea of town is that the large town is a family of small towns. Those are the single ideas everyone can grasp. And that a town should never be more than, even Aristotle writes this very detailed, should not be bigger than what a voice can shout, a good voice, you know, which is an area which is when you walk across is about maximum ten minutes. Now, when you then organize a large urban area in ten minute areas, you get an area of independent urban quarters where you not only live but you work. You go to, to school, you go to church, you go to shop, you go to the factory, you, you, you store things there. You do everything that a normal life of a week, of a day, or a week, or even a month allows you. It's very famous in French literature, you know, that people who lived in Paris, read Balzac, that you know, there are people who never left where they grew up, the quarter they grew up in Paris. They had no clue what is across the sand, because they are like micro-cities, now, so a micro city is really that does not mean that you must stay there, but you can stay there. the The misunderstanding when we promote this idea: oh, you want to lock up people? No, you. When you have the choice to live in one area of Paris, you can travel across Paris to do any anything you want, but you don't have to to buy your bread or go to school or go to church or you have. 100 churches and you have 100 everything. <laughs> so it's to add a choice to, to urbanism. So our project is a real new town at the gates outside Dorchester in, in Dorset. It's not one town, but it's four quarters, which are each by itself a small town with its own central square, um, uh, its own shopping uh shopping street, and so on. Now, within a mentality which is used to suburban, not only planning, suburban finance, suburban construction, suburban everything, behavior, it's very difficult to do something which doesn't correspond to this suburban mentality because they think it's universal. No, It's it's a completely reactionary and retarded degradation of what urbanism used to be about so it's instead of having evolution towards better things we have an evolution towards disaster worldwide disaster I mean the suburbanization of the world not only of the United States but it's the same in China or in Moscow or in or in, in Kiev or in it's across all ideologies you had this destruction deconstruction of cities into mass organizations we live in societies which tend to organize mass education mass uh, shopping mass everything (laughs) and in the end mass destruction
0: (laughs) well i think you're you're you know um i certainly that's very very clear in your Um, almost at the end of the construction of Poundbury. But like Le Corbusier, you're also executing your ideas in Latin America, specifically for the new city of Cayala in Guatemala. This project was commissioned by El Grupo Cayala. It's led by Hector Leal. Um, And interestingly enough, this may be your largest and most influential project to date. And it also embodies many of the ideas that you are describing um, in the case of Poundbury, but arguably at a larger scale. However, your ideas go beyond just mere zoning ideas, right? You spoke about the critique of zoning, and we're coming to the last couple of minutes um, of, of, the, uh, of the interview, and I want to make sure I get to my last question, which I'm asking all my guests, which is what is your favorite city and why? But I think um, in the case of the Latin American example, it, it's now being executed at a much larger scale where you have many more of these concentric or polycentric nodes, correct?
1: Yes, the of course, this polycent- polycentricity is not yet about density, because density is numbers, whereas polycentricity or mixity of uses is what should be uh, secured, even when there's very low density. There are many villages in the past where you could do everything. You know, they were not villages like just outlying and without any connection, but because they have a certain autonomy and that is what in the future will become again important is that you should have your food or your your energy or whatever you need for daily lives should not be carried across the oceans and the earth that has nothing nothing to do with green politics today which are usually bs you know
0: so Leon, I'm sorry, we're coming to the last three minutes and I want to make sure I can give you at least 30 seconds to answer this. What is your favorite city and why, Leon?
1: I have so many favorite cities that, you know, because there were good cities everywhere. And unfortunately, the best cities were cities of the past, which are now basically being degraded, if not in total, I mean, I live in a f- formidable city, but which is being degraded by horrible lampposts. <laughs> and, you know, so the, the traditional cities worldwide were incredibly beautiful and attractive. That's why people traveled, because, you know, the exoticism in the Persia, uh, America. Uh, and that is what, what we will recapture by reconstructing traditional crafts which are geared on local production and and local local uh, uh, skills that individuals should be again engaged in doing their own damn towns and learning a skill rather than just ideas you no know, which are uh, fantastic but uh, useless to survive
0: so the cities to come that you will create, thank you, Leon for always a provocative conversation and for your independent mind and your steadfast commitment to traditional principles of urban design and the making of more sustainable urban futures. I look forward to seeing you soon. And next week, I'm going to be speaking with David Gamble, the author of Idea City how to make Boston more livable, equitable, and resilient. Don't miss the conversation. You can find all previous episodes of On Cities wherever you listen to podcasts. And please follow us on Instagram at the On Cities podcast. Thank you again, Leon, and thank you for all of you to tune in. I look forward to connecting again next Friday. Hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you, Kerry. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebaud. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week.